The Provoke Podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Welcome, everybody, to our post-Provoke Global podcast. I am delighted once again to have with us representatives of Unlock Health, um, who partnered with us with the pre-summit podcast. Um, And we have um, here on screen Brandon Edwards and... Um, Kathleen Parley, and let's say hi and introduce yourselves and uh, tell us why you're here, and we'll get into some post-conference discussion. I'm Brandon Edwards. I'm CEO and founder at Unlock Health, and um, have been a huge Provoke fan and Paul Holmes fan for about 30 years. Welcome. Perfect. Yeah. Um, I am Kathleen Purley. I'm Managing Director of Innovation at Unlock Health. Um, I'm probably more of a resident nerd, um, but hopefully I won't nerd out too much on this call. Um, and really excited to kind of really give you two very different perspectives on some of these topics, um, given Brandon and I's background. I would say nerd as much as you like. Oh, um, great. Because, Be careful. <laughs> I because packed the vaccine. Looking, looking back at the at the conference, um, I think it was it wasn't quite nerd nirvana, nerdvana, nerdvana, um, but but there was certainly plenty there in terms of the discussion of AI and the way that that's going to shape our business going forward. Um, we touched obviously on disinformation, but we also touched on generative AI and how that's going to change the work environment for public relations people. Um, that I think actually, um, you know, that, that, kind of discussion leads us in in your direction certainly let, let, let why don't we just start by going completely off script here and and talking a little bit about that because uh given your title and your role um i'm assuming that ai is if not all consuming a huge part of what you're thinking about right now and we had some really interesting discussions at the conference in dc but tell me how you're viewing that both as a sort of big picture trend and also in terms of how it it's beginning to impact the day-to-day quotidian reality uh, at your firm. Yeah, and I will say, you know, so this is actually something very near and dear to my heart. So my background's in linguistics. um, And so LLMs, large language models, I feel like I've finally become relevant. You know, I remember the first time we had a family dinner, my dad was like, have you ever heard of this chat GPT thing? Um, my whole family is in oil and gas and finance. And so I was like, I'm finally relevant at the like Sunday dinner and I can actually share something that they'll listen to for once. Um, but I think it's really interesting. And I know there's a lot of fear around AI and what that means for individuals in this space. But, you know, we've taken an approach and a policy where we're really focused on how do we leverage AI not to replace the humans that work at our company, but really how do we use it to enable or superpower, supercharge them um, to be more successful. There's um, a really interesting study um, from Ethan Malik, who's one of my favorite AI evangelists that I follow, um, and the Harvard Business School. They worked with the Boston Consulting Group on the impact of AI and knowledge workers. And they kind of took two groups, separated them, um, and then gave one group of the consulting, they both got the same fake client, and they were asked to complete the same tasks. One had AI and one didn't have access to AI. And the one that did was able to complete not only 12.5% more tasks, they were able to complete it 22% faster. Um, and their quality of the outputs were about 40% higher. So when you think about, you know, there's so many, and when I talk to individuals who are a little apprehensive of it, there's so much great things And there's so many tasks. We always start when we're working on rolling out AI within our team um, or even within our clients. We start with the things that are causing friction, right? So I don't know about any single creative that really enjoys resizing images or ads, 
right? So we're leveraging AI for that. And so I, there's a lot of really interesting things in terms of how it's going to shape the workforce. But I think one thing that we're all missing is how it's going to change how consumers ingest and kind of really look at it as a tool to gather information or educate themselves in their decision-making process. And so I think that'll be a big opportunity for PR and brand agencies alike. You're muted, Paul. Um, I'm interested, Brandon, in, in your perspective as an agency owner on AI. You know, obviously, uh, as a CEO myself, I've been thinking about this. And, and my focus has been entirely on how do I take away the mundane using AI so that my people can focus on the value added? Um. And, you know, I think that's where the opportunity lies, is unleashing our people to, to spend more time being creative and strategic rather than, you know, um, uh, doing, doing the grunt work. Uh, where do you see the potential in your business? Um, yeah, no, I, that? I think that, yeah, I think that's actually a really good kind of starting point for for my POV as well. Um, and that is, I think it's really easy to take an, a new or unknown or unfamiliar technology and and treat it in sort of a binary way, right? It's either it's good or it's bad, right? It's to be embraced, it's to be fled from. Um, yeah, and, and I guess to be fair, like we don't have to deal with the implications of AI and, you know, the military industrial complex or other things that depending on what you did for a living, you, you might have to worry about, right? We have to worry about a an application of it in a in a uh, in a single industry in a fairly narrow area. Um, I, I think you know, Kathleen kind of nailed it. I mean, one, our belief was it was important to start with the kind of leadership and expertise that is in and of itself hard to find. Right, this is something that's new, um, and so you know, I think like most things for us, it starts with it starts with people. Like, do you have the right person or people who are looking at this area that you trust? To, to evaluate, to have good judgment and to be aligned kind of philosophically and from a value standpoint. Um, I, I think you kind of nailed the, the way we're thinking about it from a business standpoint. This is not about replacing humans. This is about enhancing people and removing work that in the way that most effective tools do, right? Including non-technology tools. They allow us to do things we don't like to do better or faster, or they get somebody else to do it for us, right? <laughs> in, in some ways, or something else to do it for us. Um, I, I think Kathleen has a really great vision, both for what we're doing today, but also when we really think about long term, right? This is not just about how we're going to be using AI in, uh, in public relations and marketing communications for clients. This is also long term about helping our clients think through how they're going to use AI in their organizations. So I think there is a sort of beyond communications beyond PR and marketing aspect of this that's really business consulting that someone like Kathleen is is extremely qualified to do. And perhaps even not everyone who would be great at application of this in our in our PR world or marketing world would be able to do what she's doing. So it was again sort of looking at it stair steps from our standpoint. Right. I obviously you and I have been around this business long enough um to, to see several waves of new technology. I mean, I, I started writing about public relations before the internet was a thing. So, you know, we've seen social media come along and disrupt everything. We've seen data and analytics being integrated in a much more comprehensive way into what we do. Um, and I would say that the PR industry's track record when it comes to adopting quickly and smartly the new tools available to it has been patchy at, at best over the the course of my career are you um are you optimistic that we'll get ai right and we'll get it right quickly as an industry and how are you orienting your firm to make sure that not not just the forgive me nerds like Kathleen love this stuff and embrace it and want to make it part of the equation but that the typical sort of you know liberal arts people who are doing a lot of the day-to-day -day work find it exciting too 
Yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll give my kind of macro answer is probably a more important answer for Kathleen to give in a lot of, in a lot of ways. Um, Cause I, you know, we think about it at more of an organizational design level. She's thinking about the hard work of actually getting humans to do something. Right. And that, that that's always challenging regardless of what it is. You know, I, I, I I share your view of the past of, you know, when the internet first hit us and when, you know, social first hit us and all these things is, I, I think there's this tendency to say, to sort of first to minimize it, uh, it's not going to be a thing, and then to maximize it, right? This is going to change everything. Yeah. And my experience is that, you know, like, like success, things are rarely as good or bad as they seem in the moment. Uh, and I think that's probably true with new technologies like this as well. So my my personal view is today our job is to help understand it better and to understand how to infuse it in existing uh, tools and workflows and processes that I, my, my word for that would be like you almost want it to be invisible. Right. It's an, an enabling helping tool. And I think if we look back, for example, at the Internet and uh, in the early days of the Internet in particular in our industry, once it started to just sort of be there in the normal work people embraced it and it became much more a normal part of what we did, right? When it was something different or special, when you had to understand coding and coding languages, right? When you had to, you know, when you had to embrace it at that level, it was, it was a little different and a little nichier. I think you know, long-term there's the, where can you apply it in, in ways that are maybe more direct that are less embedded, I guess, or invisible if you will. But that's my view of it, at least, is if you want to get people who are naturally sort of change averse and not technical to embrace something that's change oriented and technical, make it seem like that's not what they're doing. Right. It's just it's just it's just a part of their normal work. It's just a little maybe a little different tool to use. Have you, Kathleen, had experience of sort of um, explaining nerd to the rest of us? Yeah, actually, I, I do a lot. Um, and so I'm, I'm actually teaching two classes at Rice University in the spring on AI. Um, I always started my career wanting to be a cool professor, and I feel like it's maybe somewhat coming back full circle. Um, but, you know, I think there's three real keys to success within AI adoption. And I think one is AI literacy. And to me, there's all these big technical terms. But what's really happened over the last 18 months is truly like a UX UI revolution. Like that is like the accessibility and the democratization of AI has become so wide that it's just getting over the fear of these acronyms and some of the language and understanding what it can do and what it can't do is probably like the first hurdle. And so really we've done some kind of like, we call them ask me anythings, but we've done some like real kind of basic AI for everyone type classes. Um, and we've developed a cross-departmental task force. Um, so we have about 23 individuals from different departments that are being asked to really help us understand where there's friction points. So I have a fabulous creative um, who's on, who's been probably through and in the industry longer than I've been alive. Um, and, you know, there could be these apprehensions, but once I was able to, what we called it was like, we're calling it like a reverse roadshow where I'm going around and just doing a day in the life of each of the teams to understand kind of what are some of the tasks that I could help op optimize and operate? What are some things they don't like doing and how can I create more time and space for those things that they love to do? Um, and so there's an AI tool that helps us do video editing. Um, it automatically removes any like filler words, um, long pauses, things of that nature. And so I showed him this tool and now he's like one of the biggest advocates and he's in his seventies um, and he's fabulous. And so, you know, being able to create these cross-departmental teams and then just showing them the glimmers of where it can create space and time for why they really got into their careers, I think is what really helps us create these advocates within these agencies um, and organizations to really help propel it forward. I, I I like the reference to the person who's even older than I am, who's embracing this stuff, because I won't name names, but there was a time, this has to be 30 years ago, where I met somebody at one of the world's top three public relations agencies who had his assistant print out every email before he got into the office and he would scribble his reply by hand on the bottom of the printout and give them back to her so that she could send the replies 
<laughs> later that day, um, which is for me, the best illustration of the point that that I was making a moment ago about, you know, some people in our industry are not excited by technology at all. Um, I, and I'm sure there are people who have the same attitude towards AI even today. I, I wanted to go back and pick up on something that, that you said earlier, Kathleen, because you mentioned a background in linguistics. And Another of the sessions that I found absolutely fascinating was the, the, the session that dealt with the anti-ESG backlash, uh, which was a big theme running through a number of sessions, because obviously we've seen all this criticism of quote-unquote woke corporations um, over the last year or so, and, and really a lot of pushback on ESG and DEI. And there was a suggestion at the conference that some of this was about the language we use. Some of it was about the fact that ESG as a term either confuses or alienates people, and that there are better ways to discuss, um, you know, our commitment to um, improving the world or at least damaging it a little less um, that would resonate better with people. And I wondered what your reaction to that to that session and that whole idea about the fact that we, you know, all of these terms were created at some point by people who presumably have words like public relations or external communications or whatever in their in their titles. And the words themselves have become part of the problem. Yeah, I think, you know, I think it's very true. And I think it's really interesting um, to really kind of think about it from a 360 perspective. There, my favorite linguist has a quote, which is, you should know a word. I love the by... fact that you have a favorite linguist. I, I know. <laughs> I know. I, I told you I was a nerd, but I didn't maybe express how nerdy. Um, but he has a quote, and it's, it's one of my favorites. Um, you should know a word by the company it keeps. And just the importance of not only the the importance of the words that we choose, but the words surrounding those, right? So the entire sentence structure itself is so important. And I think we oftentimes lose when we're trying to leverage what I'll call these new, new phrases or these new coined terms, we lose sight of what truly makes us human and what makes it accessible. And I do think that that is probably a good part of creating what Brandon, I think, mentioned when we were talking earlier, kind of around this topic. So this idea of on the extreme side, like this tribalism and like understanding the language and the words that different tribes use. But how do you maintain that as a corporation or as a PR firm or a communications firm that's working on behalf of one to really make sure that it's still accessible outside of those tribes um, so that we're not alienating anyone? Sorry, I bumped my camera. Um, I, I, you, I was, you all I was... are very, are very focused on the healthcare space, where you know I, I can certainly see how, you know, it, it would be easy for jargon within the client universe to find its way into the kind of communications that you're putting out on behalf of some of your clients. Um, and the linguistics must be important in your day-to-day -day work. How do you how do you deal with that? And how do you, you know, how do you stop your people identifying so strongly with the industry you're representing that they sort of lapse into that inadvertently? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I can give you my uh, my kind of my macro response to that because I, I I agree with very much with what Kathleen's saying. Like like context is important for everything, right? I think in, 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 I'm always leery of people who think you know context doesn't matter. It's like I don't I think context matters in every single thing we do. Like I don't um, there there are very few things in life that are truly black and white, and most of us know what they are sort of viscerally, right? Um, you know, I I think that this question of how do you be a sort of a specialist or an expert and not um, and then not go you know, so down so far down the rabbit hole that it makes you unable to relate to other, you know, what we call normal people. 
because uh, it's not normal to be this interested in healthcare. <laughs> it's, it's probably not just normal to be interested, this interested in anything, actually. Um, but I think you do have to almost be a little obsessed, right? Especially with an industry that is this complex and and this nuanced and this counterintuitive in a lot of ways. And you, you try to do that, I think, a couple ways. One, I think you try to find balances internally. So Kathleen mentioned creative, for example, earlier. You know, we, we really feel like in an industry like healthcare, you have to have strategy and insights that are driven by industry experts, but you're almost better off having creative driven by people that aren't, right? So that you're so that you're setting the stage in a way that is legal and appropriate and and you know proven in the industry, but that you are bringing it to life in ways that connect with you, whether you know very much about healthcare or not. Because ultimately, the consumers of that information are not, by and large, going to be healthcare experts. I mean, let's let's hope they aren't, right? Because that means they've probably had a hard life. Um, if you have to be an expert in healthcare overall, and, and I think again, it's just sort of one example, right? I I would argue that a lot of the most interesting things that are happening in AI are happening in healthcare, but they're happening other places as well, right? And and being able to have someone like a Kathleen who can know the industry so well but can also reach out into other industry sectors and other parts of expertise, I think, and bring those things in so that you're not kind of breathing your own fumes. Um, we get li limited examples, but I think you know, basically our, our view is it's sort of an, an um, you have to have some outside perspective, you have to have some outside involvement, and you have to be really deliberate about that. You know, otherwise, it does become a little bit of an echo chamber in your firm and in the industry itself. Yeah. And I would say like to add on to that, when we think about like kind of the words that we use and, and some of the messaging, right? Like there's all these terms, whether it's like <clears throat> continuum of care and things like that, that they constantly go to. And I think, you know, one of the things that we do is try to leverage data to show a different story. And so we'll actually say, we're looking at how consumers search in your market. And these are the types of words they're using. They're not utilizing medical, surgical oncology, what they're looking for in their search behaviors and really understanding that patient journey or that consumer journey um, is key because they're not searching for surgical oncology. They're searching for, I've got breast cancer. How do I get, you know, how do I receive care? What are the treatment options? What are the different types of breast cancer? And so really trying to help shift that focus um, to a more patient or consumer centric um, and putting ourselves in their journey, I think is key. And one of the things that we're doing with AI that's really cool, and it's something that I've been playing with and testing, and it's been pretty incredible, is we're actually building synthetic focus groups um, to where we kind of uploading these different personas and giving them kind of these different experiences or messages and seeing how they react. And so we're able to leverage that data with our clients and say, hey, you know, we might not always have time or budget especially in healthcare right now, given some of the constraints to do focus groups for every single service line or every single campaign. But here's a great way for us to really try to put ourselves in an understanding of what our consumers are looking like. And, you know, back in the day, we used to have all these different personas and those kind of got over time, I would say, kind of like laughed at in a way. Um, but now with AI technology, it seems to come a little bit more full circle, especially with some of the more, I'll call like academic medical community. Um, in terms of how we're leveraging that. I, I love it, by the way, when somebody who is so self-evidently younger than I am uses the phrase back in the day. And I think to myself, what, when you were like 15? What are we talking <laughs> well, about? I, I, no, I guess, no. yes. You, you don't have to reveal your age, but... I, I will say... Um, suffice it to say that I think you special. have to be at least 40 to use the phrase back in the day. Um. <laughs> Anyway, I, I wanted to um, I wanted to talk a little about the keynote that kicked off the the conference, um, or or the 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 mini discussion that kicked off the conference with Candace Bushnell, the the Sex and the City author, who um, was first of all a little more controversial than I expected her to be, which is very cool because it is provoke after all. Um, but but got into um, a lot of the issues around the pink economy or what Weber Shandwick um, insisted on calling the she economy, um, which I thought was both interesting in terms of the timeliness, but also um, from the perspective of a firm that deals almost entirely in healthcare, can't have been particularly new, 
because I I've always thought of of women as the gatekeepers when it comes to healthcare communication, often for the whole family. Uh, what was your reaction to to that discussion um, and uh, and the important role that women are playing in economic decision making? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think so. First of all, I've got you. Got to give a shout out to somebody like a Gail Hyman, right? For uh, for the word she economy is fantastic. I don't know if I could say it with a straight face a lot, um, but it's very clever, right? And 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 I I love Gail. I think she's an amazing leader. I think she's in many ways in a a really amazing example to to you know, to people in this industry who see what's possible, right? From a from a career standpoint. Um, and given that I actually worked for her, I think I get to say that. So um, I, you know, I, I think you, you hit on something important is there are many industries where we would not have this conversation, right? We would be talking about how do you better empower women? How do you give better information? How do you do this? I, I think what we what I find interesting about healthcare is you're right, that, that women are the primary consumers, right? You refer to women as sort of the chief medical officer of the home uh, and of the family, and, and and when we say home and family, we don't literally mean their, you know, their spouse or partner and children. We mean their parents and grandparents and their children and their grandchildren. And it's it's sort of multi-generational, multi-directional in that. And yet they're operating a system, if we're being honest, largely designed by men and dictated by male physicians. Uh, and that is a, a vast overgeneralization to the point of it almost not being accurate. However, you know, th there is a skew in the in the MD community, particularly in the older MD community, that makes it disproportionately male. Um, I don't think anybody would design a healthcare system the way we've designed it from scratch if we had it to do again, right? That it, it this this is where we are. But I th I think that one of the challenges, you know, for for any healthcare firm, but maybe for any firm, period, is actually kind of understanding how to appeal to all of those audiences, not just the most prevalent one. But also to sort of almost, in my view, almost cross translate, right? So, for for women who may be better informed and better able to, able to navigate the system, we need to deliver information in a particular way. For people that are not as literate in it, or or men who are perhaps less engaged in the system than uh, than women are, we have to deliver information in an entirely different way, right? So, I, I think that's probably a long way of saying we have to meet the audience where they are. Um, and and most people, even if they are the chief medical officer of their home, you know, still are navigating a really complex and confusing industry to be able to to get what they need out of it. Kathleen, I don't know. I don't know if there's an actual AI angle to this question or not. I'm sure there is. So. <laughs> yeah, but I will say, like, you know, I think that it is slightly different in the healthcare world because it is so heavily, you know, women are this chief medical officer of the family making a lot of the healthcare decisions. But an industry where, you know, most of the employees, we look at it at scale, at, you know, including physicians and nurses, the entire staff is predominantly female, but most CEOs of hospitals are males. And I think sometimes you get that lost in terms of what they, right, there's these perceptions of what women want to hear or feel or see in certain types of advertising. And there are often times where women are missed. I mean, I think we did a big campaign a couple of years ago called Shine a Light on heart health. And it was really focused on women and heart health challenges because it is some oftentimes when you think about heart month campaigns or any type of cardiovascular advertising, it tends to be predominantly male focused. And a lot of, you know, unfortunately, signs of a heart attack or heart disease in women very much so show up very differently than your typical symptoms. And so while the healthcare industry might be slightly ahead of everyone else as it pertains to understanding the importance of the female purchasing power and decision-making, I think there are still opportunities for that industry to continue to evolve and grow um, and continue to shine a light. I mean, one of the most interesting things, and I won't go into like social determinants of health and things of that nature, but, you know, during the pandemic, you know, labor and delivery is a big, what I'll call it gateway for health systems, right? In terms of developing a relationship with the CMO of the family, um, but after the pandemic, you know, we're seeing, you know, there was that saying, it takes a village to raise a family. And post-pandemic, a lot of women and families are kind of left on their own to raise this family where they have no, you know, no kids come with manuals, right? So how do health systems and providers really step in? And how do we as a society step in to help support these women who are bringing kind of the next generations in? And so, you know, while 
healthcare has come a long way in understanding the role of females, I think there's just a huge opportunity in certain areas for us to continue to expand that. Let's let's talk a little more broadly about the the role that events like Provoke play for people like you at the at at the sort of toll face, uh, uh, as it were, delivering day to day PR services and 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 um, strategic counsel and big creative ideas. Um, you know, from our perspective there's always this need to balance the sort of big picture this is these are the huge macro trends that are shaping the world and our business role within it um with the sort of day-to-day reality of um of working with clients and getting things done and partly because I'm more comfortable viewing things from 30,000 feet, um, partly because I'm just more engaged with big issues and partly because I know almost nothing about what you really do on a day-to-day basis. We tend to, to be very big picture focused, but I'm wondering how and whether you have some sort of formal process even for taking the big sort of macro trends that you hear about at an event like Provoke and finding ways to make them relevant to the the people who do the work on a day-to-day basis. How do and how do you see that kind of interplay? Um how often do you as as leaders in your organization get to sort of step back and think about those big issues rather than focusing on problem solving the immediate problem? Well, we don't have any problems, obviously, but um I'm sure I'm sure other agencies do. No, but I hope your clients do. Otherwise life is very dull, right? Fair. That's a fair point. And we have our share for sure. Um, you know, I think I'll, I'll, I'll talk for a second, I guess, about what what I think is important about the big picture issues. And then we'll talk about how we translate it. So I think, again, we go back to that word context, right? Like everything that was discussed at Provoke to me is 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 an example of context and important context globally. Right. I mean, and and we can boil it down to like very small things even. Right. I mean, you can say. I can call a friend of mine in New York and say, how are you doing? And maybe for a moment, I forget that, you know, they have family in the Middle East that are embroiled in this conflict. Right. And it's not it's not them. It's not them or, or their you know, or their you know spouse or their kids, but it's someone in their family. And so that context of where that person is right now is shaped by a thousand things that some of us don't even know are happening right or happening in their lives. So I think I, I always go back to. If if we if we're talking about those big issues, it is helping us to better understand things that are happening, but also really to to help meet our our audiences where they are. Um, you, you know your 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 question of sort of how do we operationalize that? The answer is probably not nearly as well as we should. If we're being honest, I think I think we do a pretty good job of talking about big issues at a senior leadership level. I think we do a pretty poor job of translating that down into the organization and making it digestible for people who are busy, who are handling a lot of those, you know, kind of transactional things that we were just talking about. Right. Um, and, and I, and I think, I think it's actually something that we really need to work on, right? Like we can, we can share big news in the industry, you know, the big things that are happening in healthcare, but it's the, but it's that context again, that's so important and also really hard to, to sort of boil down into little digestible bits and that if I lament anything is that no one reads anymore, right? It's everything's 140 characters or video. And, you know, I, I, I want to read and I don't want to send someone two paragraphs. I want to send them three pages, right? I want because I want that context. I want to unpack. That's not how people consume or certainly not the way everyone consumes. So I, I think I think it's actually an area that, that we really need to work on. And Kathleen, I don't know, you, you may have done a better job of this when uh, when you were running your firm, then then we're doing now too. To be fair, well, no, I would say. I mean, one of the things that I loved, and you know, I was always a pro- proponent of, and we had this philosophy that you know, talent produces something good, but it's collaboration that produces something great. And the idea of different perspectives, backgrounds, 
and just experiences can really provide a different lens to view something through. And so we do these, um, we call them think tank Thursdays, um, which in any true PR and marketing fashion always includes some type of cocktails um, for the discussions. But we open up to the full firm where we're talking about some of these big trends and topics. And it actually rotates throughout <clears throat> the different departments where they can kind of bring some of the big ideas. Someone from senior leadership can bring an idea in to have a discussion around. Um, and we actually talked about kind of this idea of economy with the kind of like the Barbie movie um, and the marketing and, and PR communications that went around that and what was successful with that. And it, it was interesting. One of the requirements to participate in these think tanks is you have to kind of prior in our document, put a link to an article, um, a video or something of that nature that kind of ties into the topic that provides a different perspective or point of view. And so it's this idea that everyone is welcome, but you have to contribute. Um, and it's in those, some of those meetings where like the best ideas came from the strangest places, right? Where you had somebody who is literally focused on like database development, talking about the importance of brand and the importance of employee brand. And you're like, wait, what? Like, how is this like coming from you? And, and, and just, you know, they had an experience in their life where they felt like, you know, and it's funny, one of the examples that I think does a great job of, you know, regardless of what's going on in terms of the context of the world, at the end of the day, we're still humans and we want to work with other humans and we want to have that human connection. And we talk about like all this data and innovation and digital, and but we're not changing at the speed of data, right? Like our world isn't changing at the speed of data. It's changing at that byproduct, like the digital relationship. There's still this need for connectivity that's like innate in our nature. And so, you know, there's some really great examples of how that's done. And I think that's really done a great job is like, it's not just about, you know, taking a stand on some of these topics or integrating it into some of the challenges our clients are facing, but to really do this well, you have to live this from the inside out. And so how do you create these micro engagements along the way that really infuse that mentality out into the world, right? Like there's something that the CEO could say in a press release, but how as a patient, when I come in or after I receive some type of scary diagnosis, how is that feeling of acceptance and approach is going to really translate through every single engagement that that person encounters? Right. So I, I have to ask, um, because, you know, I, I'm always curious about, about how we can provide better context. Um, was there anything you wanted to hear about at the event that maybe wasn't part of the discussion or that we that we missed out? I mean, I feel like we touched on, you know, clearly the geopolitical situation got got plenty of play because PR firms are more involved in that. Um, the sort of ESG and and woke, the the pink economy, whatever we want to call it. I I have a visceral reaction um, uh, against portmanteau as a, a as a sort of structure of communication because it always seems uncomfortable to me. But hey, um, so I'm not going to say she economy again. Um, <laughs> you know, we we had Gen Z voices and and discussion of the importance of diversity, which goes to your point about different perspectives. Was, was there anything conspicuously missing, did you think? I, I know I that's the I, kind of on the spot question. Yeah, I was gonna say, I don't know. I don't know about conspicuously missing because like anybody who's ever put on any kind of thought leadership event realizes how hard it is to really narrow in on an agenda and, you know, and, a, and a set of topics, right? There's gonna be certain things you emphasize and certain things you just can't from a time standpoint. I, I think if there is, you know, we, we, we talk about tribalism a lot, but I think there's, there is also, I think, this sort of macro trend maybe that that could have benefited from some additional exploration, and that's um, and that's economic inequality, right? Because I think if you now maybe maybe my viewpoint on that is skewed by existing in the developed world and in the United States in particular. Um, actually, now that I say that, I don't even know if we're supposed to say developed world anymore. But um, you know, the 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 idea of of uh, uh, economic inequality to me is at when we dig way down is at the root of so many other topics that we discuss. I think there's actually a root 
in DEI. I think there's a root in ESG. I think there's a root in tribalism. I think there's a root in a thousand other other things that we go through because we are living in in an era of such extraordinary economic inequality and that that gap has widened and widened and accelerated in that widening. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, that would, that probably would have been the only thing to get. It's, it's a really hard topic to hit on as well. And it is, but, but it's, but it's really interesting. I feel like, I feel like it's unspoken subtext to so many of the conversations that we have, right. That I, I'm thinking as you said that, you know, I I feel like we often talk about disinformation mm-hmm. um, without acknowledging the PR industry's own historic role, whether it's tobacco or climate science, in creating this idea that, you know, you're just asking questions or you're just being contrarian or you're just, ra- you know, you're just pointing out that the, the doubt exists as a way of undermining the scientific consensus on these issues. Um, and I feel like I feel like it would be even more uncomfortable for us to talk about, you know, environmental justice, which is driven by both ethnic and economic differences. Um, by healthcare, where health equity has, to the credit of the pharmaceutical industry, finally become a concern over, I don't know if that's unfair for me to say finally, but finally become a, a sort of top line issue over the last couple of years. Um, certainly everything that's going on in the American political environment um, has that strain of economic justice running through it and underneath it. Uh, you could probably make the same case in terms of some of the big geopolitical issues that are going on. Uh, but it but it does tend to remain subtext rather than being the explicit focus of any of our conversations. And you're right. I think we can do a better job on that. Thanks. Well, I think for that matter, I think we can. I mean, we you hear that a lot when you work in healthcare, right? It's like, we're so afraid we're going to end up in a two-tiered healthcare system. It's like you're you you joking, right? We're already in a two-tier healthcare system. Mm-hmm. We might be in a three-tier if we're not careful. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, I mean, there the the difference between the care you receive as a privately insured affluent one percenter versus the care you receive as a as a you know a person on government assistance. These are not comparable. They're not. And that's not a knock on our clients. I think they do amazing job with limited resources. But economic inequality is at the very root of the system design as well. Right. And I not like I have the answer to it. Right. Like I just I'm just running a company. Um, but but I, but I think it is something that that um, one one of many topics that that for all of us probably deserves more attention. This, this is clearly a conversation that we could continue for much longer. Um, but there are time constraints even in the podcast universe. A- any predictions before we before we log off? Any predictions of what are the topics that are going to be new and exciting this time next year? What are the things that we're going to be discussing uh, in twelve months? Is there anything that's on the agenda now that we'll be taking a fresh look at, or is there anything that isn't on our radar right now that's going to blow up in the next twelve months from your perspective? I'll give you I'll give you two things. I'm not sure either are new topics, but I think there will be fundamentally different views on them um, over the next one to three years. I, I think one one to me is really big and important and one is sort of interesting. I don't know how big and important it is. Um, I think that the the first issue to me is the idea of homelessness and the impact of homelessness societally. Um, I mean, I, I think particularly, again, I'm a, I have a very US-centric perspective on everything. I can't help it. Um, but but I think the idea that there are this many people living in what is arguably the most affluent nation ever to exist on the planet, living without homes, is absurd on some level. And and I think that while maybe it's been convenient for us to sort of have those people in their place, um, I think that it is increasingly being recognized as an issue that cuts across a thousand dynamics. I'm, right. I'm sorry. I have I. Uh, <laughs> 
I knew you were going to open a huge can of worms for us, a can of snakes for us to, to discuss. But do, do you see a role for corporate America in addressing that issue? Because, man, it's it's one that, you know, I, I look at all the things that purpose has brought to the surface, right? Whether it was Black Lives Matter or environmental justice, or any of the other things that we've discussed. And you can see a clear role for corporate America. But is this something where you see a role for corporate America? And is there is there some God, this is such a cynical question. I've been doing this too long. Is there some benefit for corporate America to start to address this issue? Well, I, again, I'll, I'll, and I want to want to hear from Kathleen, too, because she probably has more interesting ones than I do. Um, but I would say, we, well, yes. And, and whether they want to or not, some are already playing a role. I mean, that you know, United Healthcare, for example, has played a role and they're not they're not a, a client in this so this is not a i'm not shilling um we're actually on the other side of them on a lot of things right if you work for healthcare providers but you know they've put a, a a reasonable chunk of money into developing housing for people experiencing homelessness because there's a recognition that if if you're not getting that right you're never getting to someone's health issues right i mean if you don't sleep under a roof and have access to food and water and electricity your health issue. There are going to be health issues and they are going to become much more substantive and difficult over time. So, yeah, I, I don't, I don't, number one, I do not have the answer. I'm not that smart. Um, but I think, you know, somewhere between private enterprise and government and the philanthropic community there, there's enough money to solve this problem. There has not been a political will to solve this problem. Uh, and, and I would say sort of political and uh, and maybe legal because there are issues with you know, sort of forcing people to be housed if they don't if they don't wish. I, so, and you mentioned a second issue. Let's yeah. So the, so the the second is I think there's going to be a lot more conversation in the future about sort of the future of of um I'll I'll call it cryptocurrencies for lack of a better term but I think to me some of the recent scandal has been kind of interesting but I think again not as big an issue as homelessness but I think important because when we we to the extent that the 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 way we think about currency and money changes that has a lot of implications for for other parts of the economy. So I, I think there will be an element of that. You know, you think about the tokenization of services, for example, right, which is really sort of a version of cryptocurrency. There's something really interesting in that. You know, I think um, like a Scott Galloway has posited the idea of, you know, what if you bought a token and that token gave you access to healthcare at New York Presbyterian for the rest of your life? And you could buy that for someone and just give it to them, right? And so forget about insurance, forget about a bill, that token gives you access. Yeah, you could do that in higher education. You could do that in other areas. So I think there's some there's some interesting ideas. To me, the the idea of homelessness just cuts across every aspect of the economy and society. The other niche, but sort of interesting, I think. Kathleen, I don't know. You you probably have some better. Kathleen, ones I, you're going to get the last word. Any? Oh gosh, it's a lot of pressure. No, I mean, I think short term. You know, like I said earlier, I think so. When it, so much of our like everyone in society is so focused on how AI is going to change what we do. We are losing sight on the impact of AI in terms of how consumers ingest information, buy, make decisions, all that. And so I do think there's going to be a huge rise in the need for brand and PR. And as a digital technical nerd, that's saying a lot um, in terms of just, you know, the shift in terms of how we look and consume information is going to change drastically when you think about search engine integration with kind of some of these AI chatbots. Um, so I think that is kind of what I'm thinking short term is kind of our biggest, I don't want to say like challenge or obstacle, but just really this huge shift that we're going to see in terms of that consumer journey. Um, the second piece is kind of more longer term when you think about it. And and I think, you know, there's a saying that if you truly understand what's going on in the world of AI and QSTAR and, you know, slips of consciousness and things of that nature, you know, you should at least have at least three sleepless nights of what does the future look like with all this AI technology. And if you haven't had three sleepless nights, then there's some learning we have to do. Um, and so I do wonder about, you know, when you have this economy and this, this access to these resources to create efficiencies, how as a society are we going to respond to that in terms of how does that change the work week? 
Um, and then also potentially like more longer term and at the speed of innovation that we're seeing and the rate of improvement, what happens if we do have a large chunk of our population unemployed due to some of these changes in AI um, and we look more long-term and how as a society and a government do we ensure that we don't cause unrest? Um, and I know that's kind of doomsday and kind of gloomy at the end of it, but I, I do think it's a very interesting topic. I think AI is going to do a lot of amazing things in terms of, especially within the medical community, in terms of drug research, clinical trials, access to care, things of that nature. But um, we would be amiss not to kind of acknowledge the elephant in the room that while we still believe that AI shouldn't replace humans fully, it should enable them as this grows and kind of continues to improve. What what parameters are we going to put in place to really help maintain that um, in the future so people can still get access and to care and, and other access to things within our society? Yeah, my my biggest concern about all of that is the, the age-old garbage in, garbage out yeah. equation, um, because I think AI has the potential to magnify any garbage that you put in yep. exponentially um, and unintended consequences seem to me almost inevitable. Oh, yeah. um, and I wish I had more faith in the people. I, all of the issues that we've been talking about, what crypto, I wish I had more faith in the in the people who were um were leading that charge than I do. That is a that is an entirely different podcast, however. Um we've come to the end of this one. Um thank you so much for um a really stimulating discussion of what happened and what didn't happen and what needs to happen at uh, at our event this year and next year. I'm really looking forward to working with you again as we start to to think that through. Um, and uh, appreciate all of the all of the thought that that you put into this. Thanks very much. You've been listening to the Provoke podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist Marketeers.